Well, again, welcome, and what a blessing it is to be with you today. And we want to today continue in our study in Revelation chapter 20, and we're looking at the millennial reign of Christ. In Revelation 20, here we learn about Satan being locked up in the bottomless pit for a period of a thousand years, and this coincides with the Lord's millennial reign that Scripture prophesies about when the Lord returns a second time to the earth. And then after a thousand years of Jesus ruling and reigning in faithfulness and truth in righteousness upon this earth, Satan is released for a while and he will once again go out and deceive mankind and there will be a rebellion against God. And today in Revelation 20, we're going to learn about Satan's imprisonment, his great deception and the great white throne judgment among uh, a few of the things that we're going to look at today here in this passage, Revelation chapter 20, a message that I entitled The Millennial Reign of Christ. And we're going to see Satan is bound in verses 1 through 3. They lived and reigned with Christ, 4 through 6. Satan's great deception, 7 through 9. And the great white throne judgment, verses 11 through 15. I'm going to go ahead and read our first point. Satan is bound. That's verses 1 through 3, and it open us in prayer. And when I open in prayer, also asking the Lord to bless the gifts and the offerings that are given here at the fellowship. And we used to take a formal offering, and then we discovered as times they are indeed a change in that um, many of us here at the fellowship either give by checking the mail uh, automatic withdrawal from your bank account or uh, give online through cclv.org that uh, we ended up setting up an agape box in the back. And if you have a gift you'd like to give here with us today, that box is available for you there. If you're listening online or through a radio ministry at WLGS, would like to support our ministry here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, you can go to our church's webpage at cclv.org and find out information how to give to our fellowship at cclv.org. And so when I pray, I'm going to pray for both the teaching of God's word and the offertory today. So we're looking at the first point. Satan is bound. Verses 1 through 3, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him to the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he will be released for a while. So, Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us and for this glimpse of the future of this world the earth that we live upon. Lord, we have right now in our world today, and there have been a summit over in Europe to try to save the earth, saying that if we don't resolve things within and a constant since 1970, it's pretty amazing. We've only had 12 years left to live. And I was only 10 years old in 1970. I am not 10 years old any longer, Lord. It's been more than 12 years, and mankind keeps looking at this earth thinking it's doomsday, and your Bible teaches us that there is at least 1,007 years to remain, seven years of tribulation and a millennial reign of Christ, consisting altogether, Lord, 1,007 years. You have a plan for this world that mankind cannot even perceive because they have rejected your truth and they are looking for themselves as their hope. And Lord Jesus, we are gathered here looking to you as our help and our hope today. So Father, teach us from your word. Help us to understand your truths. And Lord, we ask that you would bless the gifts given to this fellowship. And you have, Lord, we acknowledge you have blessed us. You've allowed us to minister here in this place 
since 1992. So, Lord, you have blessed us abundantly, and we give you praise for that. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, perhaps John has seen this angel before. He said in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. And back in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star falling from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And so the star representing an angel having a physical key to the bottomless pit. The only difference, back in Revelation chapter 9, the angel was opening the pits to allow some pretty wicked demonic forces to be loosed upon the earth. Now there's an angel coming with the key to lock and seal the pit and the purpose of locking Satan, the devil, as he's acknowledged here, as both Satan and the devil to bind him up, to cast him in the pit, to seal it up and lock him away for a thousand years. He's going to be bound up and he is going to be put away by the Lord. He is the devil. He is Satan. And John repeats this. It's not the first time that he gave these names to us. We're familiar with Satan, the name of Satan at least. I hope you're not too closely familiar with Satan. Oh yeah, he's my buddy. No, you don't want a demonic buddy like Satan at all or any demonic force to be a friend. And there are those in our day today and our world today that they are seeking spirit guides. And the only spirit that we need to guide us is God the Holy Spirit. And we need to look to none other than the Lord himself. But he is in scripture. Uh, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, he's called the great dragon. He was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and the angels were cast out with him. Satan and his tail, drawing a third of the stars at that time, he was cast out to the earth. And this is what represents the demonic forces of today. Those, some being so horrific, they were locked away. Right in the beginning in Jude 6, it tells us, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. And we're going to see a bit of the judgment of God in this text today. But one coming day, Satan will be bound. He'll be cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He'll be sealed up. And it means to seal up, to set a seal upon it. We find the same Greek word used when Jesus was put in the tomb and they came to Pilate and said, we need to set a guard. The disciples might come and steal him away. And Pilate gave him permission to seal the tomb, set a guard upon it. That same word is used when concerning Jesus when he was in the tomb in Matthew 27, 66. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. But there is a big difference between Jesus being sealed in an earthly tomb and Satan being sealed in the bottomless pit. We know according to the word of God, that the grave could not hold Jesus. There was no earthly seal that could be put upon an earthly grave that could hold the power of our risen Savior. But Satan will be sealed for a thousand years, bound and sealed and not allowed to be loose upon this earth until the thousand years is complete. A few questions could come out of this. Why does God allow Satan and his demons to roam the earth right now? Why does he allow demonic forces to be on this world? Why not lock them away now? Or why let Satan go at the end of the thousand years? And perhaps God allows them freedom, both now and after Jesus' millennial reign, to reveal their true nature and ours as well. For after Satan is released, we discover that many will follow him in his rebellion against God. 
And this proves that even in a perfect world where Jesus Christ will be ruling and reigning on the throne, much like the world that Adam and Eve, that they were originally presented by God, able to walk with God in the midst of the garden, in the cool of the evening, it proves that in a perfect world where Jesus Christ reigns upon this earth, humanity still has a heart condition. That heart condition is called sin. According to Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, it tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. What we need is to become new creations in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where it says, if any man is in Christ, or we can add today, if any man, any woman is in Christ, they are new creations in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are new creations in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's one of the difficulties I have with drug and alcohol, especially in the church, drug and alcohol ministries that teach that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Once a drug addict, always a drug addict. And I I think, no, that goes against the very word of God. If you come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's why I like the ministries who say that they are a restoration ministry. They are restoring people's relationship with God. And in that restoration process, the Lord takes what is old. He said, in fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old things have passed away, meaning they are no more. And behold, all things have become new. And that is what Christ Jesus does for each of us as we come to him in life-saving faith. My question, have you become a new creation through Christ Jesus our Lord? If you have not, today is a great day for that to happen. We find that they lived and reigned with Christ in verses 4 through 6. Again, for the context, I read. And I saw the thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection." Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. When Jesus comes again, the Bible tells us that the armies of heaven will follow him. Revelation 19.14, we looked at this last week. Here in Revelation 19.14, it tells us the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. My wife, Lily, is going to love this. She loves horseback riding. And so uh, one day, Lily, you get a white one to ride upon. The armies of heaven will come with the Lord. They'll follow him on white horses in Jude 14, Enoch prophesied. We looked at this last week as well. Enoch gave prophecy, the seventh from Adam, speaking about Enoch himself, a descendant of Adam only seven generations away. Enoch prophesied about these men also saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. The Lord is coming again. And this was a prophecy that Enoch gave before God destroyed this earth with the flood. 
And it's a prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. The Lord is coming again. That's why Jude repeats this prophecy for us. In fact, we find Enoch's prophecy nowhere else in Scripture except for here in Jude 14, saying, Behold, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his saints. The Lord's army, we think about Scripture, what, what could the Lord's army possibly consist of? Well, you have the Old Testament saints, those who believed in the word of God and looked forward to the Messiah's coming. You have what we would deem the uh, New Testament saints, the age of grace, the church, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and believe in the work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And now we are walking in faith in the work that Jesus did, we are believers, and the Lord says that we will be with the Lord when we return. And also we find that there's going to be the tribulation saints, and specifically addressed here in our passage, and the tribulation saints are unique in their position because of the great trial that they will go through because of the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. And I, I have to tell you, parts of the world today, that there are Christians who are going through great trials right now because of their faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3 tells us, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. And so the armies of heaven return to Christ. They sit on thrones. They judge. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 6 simply saying, if you are in the future going to judge the world, judge angels, how much more can you simply make judgments with your own life in our own churches today? And he was condemning them uh, for going to secular courts at that time, saying that, don't you realize you're going to judge the world? That's part of the role that we'll have. I don't quite understand it, but Scripture teaches it, and I'm sure the Lord will fill us in on what we should do when that time comes. John revealing this third class of believers here in this passage, the tribulation saints, he really zeroes in on them in three specific ways. First, because of their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. They are set apart from the other uh, saints that we know of, the Old Testament saints, the saints of the church age, the tribulation saints, because of the witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Second, because they refuse to worship the beast and his image. And third, because they refuse the mark of the beast. Now, we've been purposely going through the book of Revelation this year because of all the things that we have had come upon this world in the last almost two years now, a year and a half plus at this point. And we see that in our world, there is those in the world that have this one world mentality that they are going to bring this world unto this place of having one government to govern the whole world and freedoms will be taken away. We looked at a message a few weeks ago where I'd read a paragraph from an article that said by the year 2030, we'll have nothing but we'll be happy. And so they have plans. Now, again, nine years from now, one of the brothers after church said good message, but scary. Nine years from now, they said, we'll own nothing but be happy. And just this last week, John Kerry was saying nine years from now, there'd be no active coal plants burning here in the United States. They have this plan, and they're trying to enact it very quickly, very rapidly. And they've signed agreements this past week, signed agreements with 26 nations of trying to make this world go green. The world is worried. How are we going to fix this place? In 12 years, we're all going to die. They started saying 12 years in 1970. So 
we've made it beyond. In fact, in 1982 would have been the end of the world. It's not 1980. In fact, we're coming up to what, 2022? In 1980s, there was a band, um, I think the band name, Christian band named Daniel Amos, and, and one of the lines in the song was, it's the 80s, where's our rocket packs? Now, we're finally getting to the rocket packs, but uh, science hasn't really caught up with what's going on in our world. That's one of the concerns that I have personally, that they're trying to enact, which I have no problem with protecting the environment. When I was on that trip in Africa, we noticed a big difference from the Americans. We've been trained to pick up after ourselves, although there are some who still throw their trash out car windows and such. But when we went out um, one day on safari with the Africans there, and, you know, they would drink bottled water, they would throw their trash out. We held our trash, took it back to the compound. I don't know what happened after that. We disposed of it properly, but they may have taken it simply out the wall and threw it out. I don't know what they did with it, but you could tell the difference. We were trying to be very concerned with the natural world that the Lord has given us. In fact, the Lord gave the earth to mankind to govern over it. In the book of Genesis, he gave that command to Adam to watch over the earth to be fruitful, to multiply upon the earth. But I, I feel that they're trying to do things so quickly that they're going to try to enact things that we don't have the... Eh, I'm going to say the word, but we know that it's being twisted. We don't have the infrastructure to support the desires that they want to do. I know that there was an infrastructure bill passed, which... Only 10% of it actually deals with physical infrastructure. And the rest is trying to get us to that place where we'll own nothing and be happy. They're trying to restructure. It should be called a restructure bill, but trying to restructure our country. But not only our country, but the whole world. We know that things are changing quickly, but the Lord talks about a coming time where the Lord will come first and foremost to rapture his church and then there'll be a, at some point either immediately following or sometime after that seven years of tribulation there will be a one world government it is coming our world is getting into shape very rapidly but scripture has prophesied about these things although at times it might be frightening to ponder the things that are coming upon this world, realize that God talked about this. Well, seventh from Adam, Enoch said, the Lord is coming with 10,000s of his saints. This was prophesied even before God destroyed this earth with a great flood. 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says, this is a faithful saying, for if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now that's just the end of that verse. I don't want us to be the deniers. But what I want us to see is that if we die with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. This is what the Bible teaches. Three classes of believers given to us in the word of God and that of the Old Testament saints, the church-age believers and the tribulation saints. The tribulation saints really being highlighted here, but know that those who return with the Lord also consist of the Old Testament saints and the church-age believers. And what a great privilege that the Lord has afforded to the overcomers to sit on the throne of Jesus to not only speak about our salvation, but our participation in that of the millennial reign of Christ. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus said, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as also I overcame and sat on my Father's throne. In verses 5 and 6, it tells us, But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, 
But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So once again, talking about the millennial reign of Christ, but also those who return with the Lord, calling us priests of God and of Christ, but ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. The saints will return with Jesus Christ. Those who die in unbelief from the time of Adam to, and Eve until the Lord's second coming, they will remain unresurrected, and they won't show up again until the great white throne judgment of God, which comes at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. So he refers to the first resurrection and a second resurrection. The first resurrection refers to those who return with Jesus at his second coming. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And for those to be part of the first resurrection, the second death, the Bible tells us here, will have no power over those who are part of the first resurrection. This is because we have put our faith in the work of Jesus Christ and none other. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that we will be priests of God and of Christ and that we will reign with him during that thousand-year millennium. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 tells us, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, speaking of Adam, by man came death, by man, speaking of Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one according to his order. Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. Right now, salvation is available, Romans ten thirteen To whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One day, Jesus will put and end to all earthly rule, authority, and power when he will put his enemy under his feet. And this means that Jesus will have authority over everything and everyone. And moreover, the last enemy will be destroyed by Jesus, mankind's greatest enemy, that will be death. In Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14, it tells us, But this man... After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies were made his footstool, for by one offering he had perfected forever those who have been sanctified. By one offering, his death upon the cross, Jesus did a work upon the cross that never needs to be repeated again. When he cried out, it is finished. The price of our sin had been paid. No more would be required from God the Father. The only requirement from our perspective is to believe in the work that Jesus Christ did there upon the cross and to come into life-saving faith. Whoever calls upon the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. And this grace comes by way of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection we know this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits according to the word of God. And my question for you today, will you be part of that first resurrection? Those who are part of the first resurrection, the second death will never touch them. Satan's great deception, though, in verses 7 through 10. Again, reading the context, we find, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released out of his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea they went out on the breath of the earth surrounded the camp of the saints the beloved city and that would be the city of Jerusalem and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
During the thousand years, uh, Jesus Christ ruling and reigning upon this earth, we find that there'll be both believers and unbelievers upon the earth. Those saints who come back with the Lord, those who trust in Jesus Christ, but also those who live through the seven years of tribulation, those who are unbelievers. They have to be unbelievers because Satan could not tempt them away from Christ unless they did not believe in the first place. Isaiah 65, 20 gives us a glimpse of this future time where it says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his day, for a child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be accursed. A child dying at 100 years old. Now, I am not looking forward to being 100 years old on this earth, in this flesh, in this body. It continually breaks down on me. We were joking of one of the Calvary Chapel pastors this morning who at one time said, I used to pray to the Lord, Lord, take all of me. And then he had a stroke. He went blind in one eye. His uh, one lung collapsed. So now he has one lung. And he said, besides the other surgery, maybe hip replacements, all these things. He said, I used to pray, Lord, take all of me, and I didn't know he was going to come and take me by parts. Just take me, Lord. And also I think of this verse in Isaiah 65, 20, where the child dies at 100 years old. See, even the kids acknowledge that to have a kid at 100 years old, parents, we don't want that, right? For those who perhaps couldn't hear that on radio, but we had a, a shout down from the basement. And I think I know who it was. <laughs> we want our kids to grow up, to love the Lord, to have a family, have life on this earth, all that God plans for them. But I, I just can't picture having a kid that, you know, 100 years old. Mom, come on, kid. Time to go. By God allowing Satan to operate upon this earth, both now and after Jesus' thousand-year reign, he reveals really the heart condition of mankind. In Noah's day, the flood did not cure that heart condition. The Bible tells us before the flood took place in Genesis 6-5, and then after the flood in Genesis 8-21, they're pretty much worded the same. The thought is the same. The Bible teaches us before and after the flood that every intent and thought of his heart is only evil continually. Nor will a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ upon this earth, a place where, that will have perfect justice coming from the Lord, where the Lord will rule and reign upon this earth, it will not heal the heart sickness of mankind because humanity's sin nature came as a result of the fall. The only thing that makes us a new creation in Jesus Christ is faith in Jesus Christ. If we do not believe in Jesus Christ, then we cannot be that new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things will not pass away. All things will not become new. It's only through Christ that these things take place. In Revelation 2.27, it tells us, He will rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ will be on this earth. He'll rule upon this earth. But many will not accept that rule. I also have in your notes, Revelation 12, verse 5, Revelation 19, verse 15, and these all say the same thing. From the Old to New Testament, they repeat the same thing, slightly worded differently, but pretty much giving the exact same message. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces. And the psalmist in the book of Revelation, we find it twice. Christ will rule and reign upon this earth, but it will not fix the heart issue in man. The only thing that fixed that heart issue is the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection, and belief in the work of Jesus Christ. 
Well, we might think that Jesus visibly ruling over the creation would have no one wanting to rebel against him, but Satan will be released once again, and it will reveal the true condition of man's heart. In verse 8, the beginning of that verse, he says, he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Satan's great deception when he goes out and is released from this imprisonment shows us that time and punishment could never heal the heart of this great deceiver. For Satan, he will never be saved. He'll never give his heart over to God. In fact, Scripture is kind of silent on the option, and see, people have asked, can angels be saved? And Jesus Christ came to pay the price of humanity's sin, but I do not believe that he came to pay the price of those angels who sinned. But still, time and punishment did not change the great deceiver's heart. He went in deceiving the nations. He comes out deceiving the nations. Isaiah 14 gives us a glimpse of Satan using his proper name there, Lucifer, where we learn there in Isaiah 14 the five I will statements of Christ, where the Word of God tells us how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, the son of the morning, how you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart the first I will. I will ascend into heaven. The second, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The third, I will sit on the mounts of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. The fourth, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. The fifth, I will be like the Most High. And yet, you will be brought down to shield to the lowest depths of the pit. The five I will statements of Satan. And in Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19, I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. We find another glimpse of Satan where we actually find that the Lord created him a special class of angel where it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Say to him, Thus says the Lord, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The workmanship of your timbrels, the pipes, was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways until the day that iniquity was found in you. Satan was created the anointed cherub of God. And yet the five I will statements of Satan, when iniquity was found in him, the word of God said he was cast out as he is to this day. One day, He'll be sealed in a pit. One day he'll be released from that pit. Satan, a created being who had great potential, but his fall left him wanting. Scripture uses that name Satan 54 times in the Bible. 34 times we find the devil used referring to him. We first meet him in the book of Genesis as the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He's also called the dragon, the evil one, the angel of the abyss. He is the ruler of the world, the prince and the power of the air, the god of this world. He has other names like Apollyon, Abaddon, Belial, and Beelzebub. According to John, Satan sinned from the beginning. Moreover, Jesus said that he was a murderer from the beginning. Finally, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he has power of death. And because of our adversary, the devil, he is the wicked one. He is the accuser of our brethren. He is the tempter. He is the father of all lies. Therefore, Peter writes to us in 1 Peter 5, 8, saying, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But thanks be to God. In 1 John 4, 4, it tells us, You are of God, little children, and have overcome 
Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We need to always remember that, that he who is in us, Jesus Christ, is greater than he who is in the world. Second half of verse 8, it picks up in verses 8 and 9. We pick up with the words Gog and Magog to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth to surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now this really ties to Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it tells of a northern alliance that comes against Israel, Gog and Magog. While many believe this battle of Gog and Magog, I would agree, becomes at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, the beginning of the seven years, we find that the spirit of Gog and Magog lives on. They're mentioned here in the text of Gog and Magog at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, that here the battle of Armageddon, where the armies of the earth will gather. Satan will go out and deceive the whole world. They'll gather together to battle against Christ. And yet, though they surround Jerusalem, though they surround the Lord's armies, God intervenes, opens up the heavens, fire falls down and destroys them. But it really tells us that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, as I've already mentioned, that the spirit of Gog and Magog, the spirit of fallen humanity, continues on, even though Christ is here upon the earth, ruling upon the earth. It was so repeated so many times in the Old Testament with the good kings that were found in Israel. They had some really good kings who ruled over their land, like David, um, for a time, Solomon. Hezekiah, Josiah, there were some real good kings that ruled over the nation of Israel. But quite often a king would die off and a new king would come on the throne and the people's heart would be revealed. They would turn from the Lord. They would fall into captivity. You know, I heard something this week as I I listened to a lot of Bible teaching during the week and shows and I can't even tell you where I heard this. But it reminded me of the book of Judges and the cycle of sins that you see there in the book of Judges. But also it reminds me of where we're at here in the United States right now. And this individual said, and I don't even know who it was, but they said in the Old Testament you'd find these cycles of sin where you had a generation that loved the Lord and served the Lord with all their heart and soul. And God worked greatly in that generation like during the rule of King Josiah, we could say. I'll pick on my grandson's name there. But then that king would die, and the next generation would have apathy. The next generation would fall into sin, and the next generation would go into slavery. We find it often repeated in the book of Judges. They go from this place of loving the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their kids have apathy toward the Lord. The next generation... They could care less about God. They um, deal in the occult, worship idols. And the following generation goes into servitude. Now, in the Old Testament, that was physical servitude. They might be taken to Babylon, as we read about happening in Scripture. But I feel that that's where we're at right now in the United States. We went from a country that was formed to love God. We had a time where people were seeking the Lord God as a nation, as a whole. And then we came to this place of apathy. We've long passed the point to where we could care less about God, where we are dabbling in the occult and many things that we shouldn't mess with. And what's next? Servitude. I believe that's where we're at. We're on the edge of that. Someone asked me this week if uh, I believe that revival could come and heal this land, and I certainly do. But I wonder if the Lord will give us one last revival. I pray that he does. I, wanna, I long to see the Lord to send a revival upon this nation, upon this church. But it's only Christ who can do that. So I'm not sure where we're at in this 
the Lord's timetable, but we know that the Lord has prophesied that these things are coming. In Romans 3, verses 10 and 12, it tells us, there are no righteous, no, not one. There are none who understand, none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And that is humanity apart from God. That is humanity that will fall if they do not come to faith in Jesus Christ. As Satan brings the army of the world to gather against Jesus, his saints, and the city of Jerusalem, it tells us they number as the sands of the sea, and the Lord is the one who intervenes, sends fire down from heaven to devour them. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you was believed, that the Lord is coming to bring judgment upon this earth. Now he's going to judge the whole world, but for us to not be judged, we need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It tells us then in verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. After one last attempt against God, his people, and the city of Jerusalem, Satan will finally be cast away there in the lake of fire. Notice that it tells us where the beast and the false prophet are. We learned last week in Revelation 19 that they were cast into the lake of fire 1,000 years earlier. And yet the Bible tells us they're still there. It didn't say that they were cast into the lake of fire and annihilated. It said that they are. It teaches us that there'll be no annihilation of souls, but eternal judgment. The own holy trinity, that of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, who deceived kings of the earth, gathered peoples to make war against Christ, they finally come to their final judgment. James wrote to us in James 1, 16 and 17, saying, Do not be deceived. I want to repeat that. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and perfect gift comes from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shadow of turning. The Bible calls us to not be deceived. And I fear in our churches today that we have many who are being deceived because they have long walked away from the truth of God's word. Only believers in Jesus Christ can keep themselves from being deceived. And the great white throne judgment, verses 11 through 15, we close out. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, the small, the great, standing before God, and the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Those who come to faith... In Jesus Christ, they have no part in the second death, which basically means we may die once physically, but we will not die again spiritually or be found in this second death. Although there'll be many thrones during the millennial reign of Christ, we're introduced here now to the great white throne there in heaven, referring to the judgment of all those who did not believe in God and his son, Jesus Christ. Going all the way back to Cain, who first sinned and rose up and killed his brother, Abel. 
to those who die in that final battle at the millennial reign of Christ, they will then rise up in judgment against the Lord. Uh, they'll rise up in judgment. The Lord will judge against them. Where it says in Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then he shall sit on the throne of his glory. And Daniel 12, 2, it tells us, and many of those who have fallen asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The Bible doesn't teach about reincarnation. There are some religions that teach that you keep living over and over again until you reach that state of nirvana, until you get it right. You get one chance on this earth. One chance. We die, then the judgment comes. The question is, will you stand in the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, the judgment of believers, or the great white throne judgment of God, the judgment of unbelievers. David Hawking wrote this about this section. He said, Some believe that there is only one general judgment of all persons, believers and unbelievers. However, such a view does not fit the facts. The resurrection of believers occurs before the millennial, while the resurrection of unbelievers occurs after the thousand years. The only judgment that takes place after the thousand years is the judgment of unbelievers. In John 5:22 and verse 27, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to his Son, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. The one who sits on the throne and judges is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the books were open, as it says in verses 12 through 13. Of all the books that are open there and the things that are written in the books, there's one book, the book of life, that they are judged by. All who stood before them, all unbelievers, both small and great, from Cain until the end of the millennial reign of Christ, will be judged on that day. Ezekiel 33:11 says, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? God has no pleasure. Maybe, perhaps, think, why is the Lord taking so long? The Lord is not slack concerning his promises toward us, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We say, Lord, why are you taking so long? He says, because I'm waiting for one more to come. Come to my son in life-saving faith. You know, most of us don't keep diaries, but here the Bible tells us the books will be open in heaven. So if you don't keep a diary, don't worry about it. You might have an angel writing down for you. So the books will be open, but it's really the book, the book of life that is most concerning here. Those whose names are not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire for eternal judgment. All the unbelieving dead will stand before the great white throne and him who sits on it. None will escape. The sea gives up her dead. Death and Hades delivers up their dead. And yet, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be saved. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole soul, spirit, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. The Lord created us as a lesser triunity of spirit, soul, and body. And the Lord Jesus Christ is able to save us to the uttermost, those who come to Jesus Christ in life-saving faith. Why do I believe that only the unbelieving dead will be part of this final judgment? Because the Bible tells us this in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When this fleshly body dies, I'm going to be with Jesus. 
And once I'm with Jesus, I'm going to be with him forevermore. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57 says, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. And do you have this victory today in Jesus Christ our Lord? And the second death in verses 14 and 15 Death and Haiti were cast into the lake of fire. He says, this is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. No purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach about purgatory. You can't get caught in the in-between worlds and work your way or do penance and finally make it to heaven. That's not taught in Scripture. Those whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That's what's taught in Scripture. If you want to take a chance, go ahead. But you'll be like that rich man who looked up from Hades and desiring only a drop of water to be put on your tongue because the torment is so great. God doesn't want this for us. In fact, he made a way of escape through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's some of those things about the second death written to us in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2.11 He who hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. How do we overcome? We overcome through faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation 26, we already read this today. Blessed be, uh, blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And then again, Revelation 21.8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, I can't say it, I can't say the abominable snowman either, so... It doesn't surprise me. My sister this week sent me a note and she said, it makes me smile when you trip up on words because my dad used to do it from the pulpit as well. It's like, I am my father's son. I prove it over and over again. So I'm going to pick up where I left off. I don't want to say that A word again. A-B-O-M-I-N. A-B-L-E. You guys can all tell me. Murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars shall have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Here's the thing. Way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses called this out to the children of Israel. This cry is still active to this day. In Deuteronomy 30, 19, he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you both life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you both and your descendants might live. And to this day, the Lord Jesus Christ is crying out to this world, saying to the unbelieving world, choose life that you might live. Let's go ahead and stand together. I'm going to have the worship team come forward. We're going to close out in a song of worship. I'm going to be down front for you if you have a prayer need. Um, I'll be down front to pray with the needs that you may have. Also, I just want to encourage you, we do have uh, prayer benches up front here at the front of the church. If you want to just come and kneel and pray. Uh, the reason I purchased the prayer benches for our fellowship a couple of years ago is because in my early 20s, it was a long time ago, but in my early 20s, I was spiritually just struggling in my faith. And it was a private struggle. And a lot of that struggle took place. The battleground was at the prayer benches in my dad's church. And I would just come and often kneel down and pray and ask the Lord to help me. And uh, I really want us to have a spirit of prayer, a culture of prayer in this fellowship.
So you can come forward. Bob promised that he will not focus the cameras on you. But really, it's between you and the Lord. I'll be here if you need prayer. But I want to challenge you also. If you have a prayer need and you just want to go to Jesus, you can kneel down where you're at. You can pray where you're at. Or you can come forward and kneel down and pray at the prayer benches here. So, Father, we thank you for your word and for what it teaches us. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us now as we close out in this last song of worship. Minister in this place, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.